The True Crime Society podcast contains adult themes and violence and is not intended for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. What's up, guys? Welcome to another episode of the True Crime Society podcast with Stephanie and Olivia. It has been the craziest day, so I'll just preface with that now. This episode might be Wasn't planned. a little. Yeah. So we have like a totally different episode planned to record. We were always going to record today. This is when we normally record. But the um, affidavit, the arrest information for the Moscow murders came out today so we thought maybe we should talk about that because it's been absolute chaos yeah i yeah (laughs) my mind is still blown like i've only been awake here for a few hours (laughs) obviously because of the time difference but it's just wild it's crazy really like this the affidavit has a lot of information and it has kind of confirmed a lot of things that we've discussed in the past it's very very interesting yeah, like your mind is blown, but I'm just like washed up and exhausted at this point <laughs> because I, the affidavit came out when I was literally like leaving the grocery store and I like put all my stuff in the car and I was just sitting there and I was like, oh shit. And it was all coming out and I sat in the grocery store parking lot just like screenshotting all the pages, trying to post everything. I was on break for probably like an hour and a half. I'm lucky that no one noticed because I was they just might, posting stuff. They might notice now when they listen to this. I know, whatever. Yeah. You know, it's important. Um, yeah. But I'm always just like, I feel so much pressure to post it right away because I'm like, people depend on us. Yeah. And like, even when I woke up, there was so many messages. And I know that you and Kelly went through them as well. Like there was, I would say, thousands of messages maybe today. Like it seems like that's coming about all this. Um, I wish I said how many messages we got. It only ever says 20. It just maxes out at 20. I feel so bad too, like for anyone who sent us a message and we try to acknowledge at least every single message, but I was, it won't even let me scroll back any more than a few hours. So I'm sure there's all these messages that we are never going to see because we just have no way to get to them. So apologies if that's you. (laughs) Yeah. I tried when it gets crazy like this, I, I try to post to the story at least and be like, I'm going through the messages. Like, I'm sorry if I can't actually respond to them because I normally try to at least like give a heart or something but when there's this many messages it's just impossible and half the time people are just like oh my god what that's crazy ah (laughs) I know and today like we'll get into it but I I think 90% of the messages are all asking the same same question (laughs) asking one question which we'll get into later but um yeah everyone is blown away I think by what's come out in the affidavit yes so we'll do we're going to go through it. We're going to read some of it that has like the more detailed kind of like interesting information of the night. And then there's more technical information on how they tracked Brian and his phone and his car and all that. So we have some notes that Kelly helped Summary. us with. Um, she's part of our True Crime Society moderator group. So she helped and took some really great notes today. So we'll go through those and try to get all the info out. And then we'll go through some questions and what people are saying online. The whole affidavit is 19 pages. So we'll probably just go through the first five or six pages because that's kind of where the bulk of the new information is. And I guess the concise information as well. I was actually just thinking, 
not for the podcast, but I think the second page isn't anything. I think it's just the back of the front page. Because it doesn't it doesn't skip. It goes autopsy report provided by Spokane. Then it's the first page and the second page continues county medical examiner. I said I thought maybe it was intentionally left blank or left blank for whatever reason, but it does say redacted. So But doesn't I don't know. it say it backwards or no? So on the, fir- on the first page, no, the first page, it's actually like the redacted stamp. And then when you scroll down onto the second page, you can see where it's gone through the paper. So yeah, maybe you are right. I feel like it's just the back of it. Yeah. I feel like for the, some reason page it's- page one and two. Yeah. I don't know. Anyway, there's no second page. No, nothing on the second page besides the redacted stamp coming through the paper. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I feel like it's the back. Anyways, how's your how's your week been? How's your day been? What's going on? Let's have our, yeah. our cute little intro chat. <laughs> yeah, it's been good. Pretty quiet. We're all over our COVID sickness now. I still feel a tiny bit congested, but a hundred times better than I felt when we recorded last time. So that's good. Okay. Um, yeah, not too much on. I'm taking the kids away this weekend. We're still on summer break here, so taking the kids away this weekend. We're going into the city for a girls weekend, which will be nice. Um, But yeah, nothing too much really happening just in the holiday groove at the moment, which is going to be hard to get back into reality when we have to in a few weeks. Yeah, it's the worst. I Mm. actually knew that you were going away because I think your calendar thing went on the true crime society calendar so it came up it came up like on my phone it was like hotel reservation this weekend I was like where am I going (laughs) I wonder how that happened I don't yeah I don't know but then I clicked it and it said it was like in Sydney or or something I was like oh it must be Olivia's (laughs) I have to look in my because I never hardly use my calendar sometimes it just like automatically does it yeah the dog's barking right on time (laughs) peeps Keeps here. She's she's nice and quiet for uh, once. <laughs> yeah. What about you? What are you up to? Um, nothing. I just had an annoying day dealing with mm-hmm. not dealing with, like I'm interested in all of it, but the only reason why I'm always like, oh, it's so annoying, because it's like always when I'm at work, always yeah. when I'm doing stuff, and I'm trying to multitask and like not get caught being on my phone all the time and still do my job and go grocery shopping or whatever. So yeah, then I had to just be like a fucking maniac all day. Mm. Um, and I also, I forgot already, I was joking with Mike right before we recorded about that review we got. And he was like, can you please, when you do the intro, just be like the forever 21 of podcast. When you were saying just before you went shopping, I was just going to say, did you go shopping at forever 21? <laughs> uh, so someone left us a review that said we were like the forever 21 of podcast, just like a <laughs> shitty money grab basically, which is not true because we did this. I just want to say we've done True Crime Society for free. Since 2017. <laughs> yeah, we only started having ads last year. Yeah. So this was this was the shittiest money grab of all time, if that's what it is. Yeah, and even like we make no money off the Instagram and I feel like most no. of the money that we do make from this podcast goes straight back into it anyway in terms of, you know, editing and research and things like that so anyway yeah I will say I know that ads can be annoying but that's life babes (laughs) yeah show us a podcast that has no ads that you know or you don't pay a subscription for they're all everyone everyone is the same it's the only model unfortunately yeah fortunately or unfortunately (laughs) so you know what I mean, Forever 21 could have been worse. <laughs> Sometimes the the mean reviews make me feel really down, but I actually had a little laugh at that one. <laughs> that one I was like, wow, creative. Love that. <laughs> anyway, we had two nice ones as well, which I'll share on the Instagram. So it was a bit of a shit sandwich today. 
<laughs> bad, yeah. bad, good, bad, good. <laughs> yeah, sometimes they hurt my feelings, and sometimes I'm just like, whatever. Yeah. This one made me whatever. <laughs> all right, so now that you guys are caught up on what's going on with us, know you all love that so much. <laughs> the most important part of your week. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we'll get into a much more serious, sad subject. See, that's why we have to do the intro, just like a little bit of like happiness before we talk about all this sad, horrible stuff. Yeah. All right. So I think where we left off in our last episode in regards to Moscow was that Brian had been arrested and he was in Pennsylvania and he was awaiting extradition to Idaho. So just as a quick recap, he did end up waiving his extradition, um, which I actually found quite interesting because... I didn't realize that he and his defense team didn't know what was in these documents. I I thought they would have had access to them, but they weren't allowed to have access until he was back in Idaho. So according to the press conference that the Pennsylvania police held the other day, Brian was very keen to go back to Idaho so they could discover what was in these documents. I think Mm -hmm. his attorney actually used the phrasing, he was excited to be exonerated or something along those lines. So anyway, he was extradited very quickly back to Idaho like I think yesterday in the US, which was the 4th of January. Now it's the 5th of January there. And basically these documents have all come out on the 5th. He arrived back in at night on the 4th and the documents came out early the next day, the 5th. Yeah. So that's kind of where we are at the time of recording. These documents have just been released a few hours ago. Ryan Koberger in a Moscow, Idaho courtroom, only a five minute drive away from the crime scene. The maximum penalty for this offense, if you were to plead guilty or be found guilty, is death or imprisonment for life. Do you understand? Yes. Charged with four counts of murder, the accused killer with zero visible emotion on his face. Just before his initial court appearance began, the unsealing of the probable cause affidavit with disturbing and potentially damning information. There was other people home at that time. We've known two other roommates were in the house on the morning of the murders, but it was a mystery if either of them heard or saw anything. Now we know. A roommate with the initials DM told investigators she was in her room and heard crying. The affidavit prepared by a Moscow, Idaho police corporal has this disturbing detail. She opened the door for the third time after she heard the crying and a figure clad in black clothing and a mask that covered the person's mouth and nose walking towards her. DM described the figure as 5'10 or taller, male, not very muscular, but athletically built with bushy eyebrows. The male walked past DM as she stood in a frozen shock phase. The male walked towards the back sliding glass door. DM locked herself in her room after seeing the male. DM did not state that she recognized the male. The affidavit says that earlier when DM heard crying from one of the victim's rooms, she heard a male voice say something to the effect of, it's okay, I'm going to help you. We'll go through some of it, like, as it's written. I'll try to take out some of the redundant stuff, because if you've read an affidavit before, you know a lot of it's just, like, redundant police jargon. Yeah, so, yeah. I'll try to get it out. The first few minutes, I think, we'll be running through, well, you know, probably 10 minutes or so, we'll probably be running through the affidavit, and then we'll kind of get into a more discussion-based episode based on questions and things and the summary and different things like that. Yeah. Okay, so... I'll just start where the info starts. You know, it starts off with like, this information is provided by this police officer and he has this experience, blah, blah, blah. Um, If you're interested in that, you can read it online. (laughs) (laughs) 
I'm going to start on like the third paragraph here. It says, Officer Smith and I entered the King Road residence through the bottom floor door on the north side of the building. Officer Smith and I then walked upstairs to the second floor. Officer Smith directed me down the hallway to the west bedroom on the second floor, which I later learned was Xana Kernodal's room. Just before this, there was a bathroom door on the south wall of the hallway. As I approached the room, I could see a body later identified as Xana lying on the floor. Xana was deceased with wounds, which appeared to have been caused by an edged weapon. Also in the room was a male, later identified as, as Ethan Chapin. Ethan was also deceased with wounds later determined to be caused by sharp force injuries. I then followed Officer Smith upstairs to the third floor of the residence. The third floor consisted of two bedrooms and one bathroom. The bedroom on the west side of the floor was later determined to be Kaylee's room. I later learned there was a dog in the room when Moscow police officers initially responded. The dog belonged to Kaylee and her ex-boyfriend, Jack. I found out from my interview with Jack on November 13th that he and Kaylee shared the dog. Officer Smith then pointed out a small bathroom on the east side of the third floor. This bathroom shared a wall with Madison's room. So then it says, as I entered the bedroom, as I entered this bedroom, I could see two females in a single bed in the room. Both Kaylee and Madison were deceased with visible stab wounds. I also later noticed what appeared to be a tan leather knife sheath laying on the bed next to Madison's right side. The sheath was later processed and had KBAR, USMC, and the United States Marine Corps Eagle Globe and Anchor insignia stamped on the outside of it. The Idaho State Lab later located a single source of a single source of male DNA left on the button snap of the knife sheath. Okay, so then it goes into how they interviewed the two surviving roommates. Um, they refer to them as should I say they refer to them as, as BF and DM. Yeah, their names which are out there everywhere are Bethany and Dylan. So DM is obviously Dylan. BF is Bethany. So. I think it's easier if you just use their full names. They are like not their full names, sorry. They're just their first, first names because they are out there. Everyone knows yeah. who they are. Um, so it kind of goes into a little bit about where their rooms were located. And as we know, they were on the very bottom floor. And the only things down there really were their bedrooms and I think another bathroom. So then it goes into the timeline of the night which is interesting because it's kind of it's a little different than what we had originally thought. So it says, On the evening of November 12, 2022, Ethan and Zana were seen by Bethany at the Sigma Chi House on the University of Idaho campus um, around 9 p.m. on November 12th to 1.45 a.m. on November 13th. Bethany also stated that at approximately 1.45, Ethan and Zana returned to their home. And Bethany also stated that Ethan didn't live at the residence, but was a guest of Xana, which we knew. Um, and then it says kind of what Maddie and Kegley were doing. It says that they were at a local bar, the Corner Club on Main Street, and that they were there per video footage between 10 p.m. and 1.30 a.m. And approximately 1.30 a.m. they can be seen on video at the Grub Truck, which we've seen and know about. And then it says that the private party driver picked them up around 1.56 a.m. from there and brought them home. Dylan and Bethany both told police that around 2, by 2 a.m. everyone was home and they were either asleep or at least in their rooms by 4 a.m. And this is with the exception of Zana, who received a DoorDash order at the residence at approximately 4 a.m. And law enforcement identified the delivery driver and spoke with him. This is kind of where it gets 
you know, I hate to say interesting, but I guess this clarifies a it's lot. It's like of newer what, information. Yeah, a lot of what happened that night. There's been a lot of speculation, and this clarifies what actually likely happened. Yeah, so this information is coming from Dylan. So it says she stated that she originally went to sleep in her bedroom. Wait. It says her bedroom was on the second floor. Yeah, it was. That's what I mean. That's a new bit of information. So it was only Bethany that was on the first floor. Oh. Mm. Peep. But I don't know, like we, maybe we can discuss it, but I don't know if she always slept there, but I'm assuming she was. Like, I don't know. Anyway, yeah, that's, this is new information. Is floor? I don't remember. Yeah, there is. There's two bedrooms. In the floor plan, it said it was a vacant bedroom. Mm. So it's not. I've got the floor plan I sent to Kelly before here. I didn't even notice that the first time I read it. Mm. Um, so she stated that she was awoken around 4 a.m. by what she stated sounded like Kaylee playing with her dog in one of the upstairs bedrooms, which was located on the top floor, as we know. And a short time later, Dylan said she heard who she thought was Kaylee say something to the effect of there's someone here. But then the police note, a review of records obtained from a forensic download of Zana's phone showed this could have been her, Zana, as she indicate her phone indicated that she was likely awake and using TikTok at approximately 4.12 a.m. I do think it sounds like it was probably Zana who said that and it wasn't Kaylee. Um, just kind of a mistaken voice by the roommate. Yeah. I feel like it seems like Kaylee and Maddie were maybe sleeping or at least yeah. like in bed going to sleep where yeah. Zana just ordered food and was awake yeah um so dylan stated that she looked out of her bedroom but didn't see anything when she heard the comment about someone being in the house she then opened her door a second time when she heard what she thought was crying coming from Zana's room and then she said she heard a male voice say something to the effect of it's okay i'm going to help you so at approximately 4 17 a.m a security camera located at 1112 king road a residence immediately northwest of the house picked up distorted audio of what sounded like voices or a whimper followed by a loud thud. A dog can also be heard barking numerous times starting at 4.17 a.m. The security camera is less than 50 feet from the west wall of Zana's room. So Dylan stated that she opened her door for a third time after she heard crying and saw a figure clad in black clothing and a mask that covered the person's mouth and nose walking towards her. She described the figure as 5'10 or taller, a male, not very muscular, but athletically built with bushy eyebrows. The male walked past her and she stood in a frozen and shocked phase. She said the male walked towards the back sliding glass door and Dylan locked herself in her bedroom. Um, she said she didn't recognize him and that led investigators to believe that that was the murderer leaving the scene. So it kind of goes into, this is where it starts going into evidence that they got. It says that they reviewed downloads of the girls' phones and video. It says that, that they were then led to believe that the homicides occurred between 4 a.m. and 4.25, which is kind of an hour later than they originally thought. Yeah, I think they originally said between three. Well, they, I don't think the police actually ever said, but there was one article, oh, yeah. I think the Independent said it was between three and four. So, yeah. And it says, like, during the processing of the crime scene, investigators found a latent shoe print. Um, it was located during the second processing of the scene. They said that the shoe print showed a diamond-shaped pattern on the bottom, similar to um, a Vans type of shoe, if you've ever seen those, just outside of Dylan's bedroom door located on the second floor. 
This is consistent with Dylan's statement regarding the suspect's path of travel. So for the rest of the affidavit, we'll kind of refer to some notes that Kelly made because it's a lot of technical information. You know, it talks about streets and sightings and different things. So this is a summary. We'll put the whole affidavit on the blog if you want to read it. But basically... They uh, police looked into video footage and saw that there was a white Hyundai Elantra at the scene. They said at the time there wasn't usually a whole bunch of cars coming in and out, so they thought that was interesting. The car didn't have a front license plate and it was captured on footage traveling between Pullman and Moscow. On the 13th, which is the day of the murders, the car was seen at 2.44 a.m. in Pullman, at 2.53 a.m. in Pullman heading towards Moscow. At 3.26 a.m. it was seen in Moscow, 3.28 a.m. it was seen in Moscow, and between 3.29 and 4.20 a.m. there were multiple sightings of the car in the King Road neighborhood. It made three passes by the King Road residence and then it left. At 4.04 a.m., the car was seen driving to King Road. It stopped and turned around and then drove back to King Road. When it was in front of the house, he unsuccessfully attempted to park or turn around and was then seen doing a three-point turn near Queen Road. At 4.20 a.m., the car was seen departing the area around the residence at a high rate of speed. And at 5.25 a.m., it was observed on five cameras on the WSU campus and in Pullman. So the other, I think the other places where the car was spotted was on the 13th of December, it was in Colorado. On the 15th of December, it was in Indiana. And on the 16th, it was in Pennsylvania. So that was when Brian went home for Christmas, basically, where he and his dad did that kind of cross-country trip. So on November 25th, the police asked law enforcement to be on the lookout for a white Hyundai Elantra and on November 29 at 12.28 a.m., so this is a few weeks after the murders, a WSU officer ran a search and located the suspected car with a Pennsylvania license plate and registered to Brian Koberger. Another officer found that car in the parking lot of Brian's registered address. So they knew within a few weeks of the murder that this was likely a suspect or someone who they needed to look more into. So I know that we spoke about how it didn't seem like they had much. It seemed like they really did. They just kept it super close to their chests. Yeah. And I saw, I don't know if it it might be in the affidavit, but it said how it didn't have a front license plate in Pennsylvania. You don't have to have a front license plate. So that kind of also just ties that car specifically to like both of his locations. Yeah. So they also determined that Brian did have bushy eyebrows, which is consistent (laughs) with Dylan's description of the suspect. Um, So before the murders on August 21st, 2022, Brian was pulled over for a traffic stop by police and he gave them his cell phone number. Police used that number and pinged it to get where the location was for his phone from November 12th to 14th. One kind of important thing to note is that his phone did not ping at the Moscow King Road residence between 3 and 5 a.m. on the day of the murders. His kind of ping history was that on November 13, it was pinged at his apartment in Pullman at 2.42 sorry, 2:42 a.m. At 2.47 a.m., it was pinged leaving his apartment and traveling south through Pullman. At 2.47, the phone stopped responding to the network, which indicates that it was likely turned off or powered down or whatever. At 4.48 a.m., though, it comes back on and it pings on Highway 95 south of Moscow near Blaine, Idaho. 
between 4.50 and 5.26am. It's travelling south on Highway 95, then west towards Uniontown, Idaho, and then back north to Pullman. And at 5.30am, he or his phone arrives back at his residence. Seems like he turned it off for yep. the murders. It's so interesting to me that, which we'll get into as well, but someone who's studying criminology kind of did these half-assed measures to avoid being caught, but then leaves the knife sheath there and yeah, goes in his like- own vehicle. Like, it's just very strange. And makes a friggin' three-point turn. <laughs> like, imagine going to a murder and doing a three-point turn Yeah, on the road or a road nearby, like... Like you would not be one. It's really messy. It's so messy and so half-assed. Like there's no other way to describe it. If I got to the point where I had to make a three-point turn, I'd be like, all right, I got to do this a different night. I've already (laughs) messed up. I feel like he from – like we'll get more into discussion later, but I feel like from what I've heard from him, he was very book smart, it Mm -hmm. seems, but not like street smart. So like, yeah, you can study how to commit a murder and do all these things, but once you're there and the adrenaline's going, yeah, it's probably easy to forget the knife sheath in the dark after you just stab two girls to death. Yeah. So he arrived back at 5.30 a.m. to his residence. This is interesting. At 9 a.m., he left his residence again and went back towards Moscow. His phone pinged in the area of the King Road residence between 9.12 and 9.21 a.m. So he kind of returned to the scene of the crime see what was going on yeah at nine and at that stage nothing was going on we believe like they still hadn't called 911 by this stage so you know I wonder if he was disappointed yeah or I wonder if he went back to maybe see if he could get the knife sheath possibly Mm. anyway 9 32 a.m he was back at his home so um they included like other stops that he made throughout the day because i think it was just kind of another way to show proof of like he just went about his yeah and also like more evidence that they were appropriately tracking him because they'd be like his phone pinged here and he's on camera at this location so it's kind of just backup proof so the defense can't be like yeah this isn't accurate So one kind of interesting summary from the affidavit is that Brian's phone did ping near the King Road residence at least 12 times prior to November 13 during the late evening and early morning. So it's kind of interesting that he seems to have been hanging around that residence, which may end up, you know, I know we've spoken about there being rumors of Kaylee being stalked or there being a stalker. So maybe this is where that kind of fits in. They didn't specify in the affidavit though. The other kind of main thing from the affidavit in summary is that on December 27, agents did get trash from his residence in Albrightsville in Pennsylvania. So this is after he'd arrived home and he was staying with his parents for Christmas. They ran a DNA sample against the crime scene sample, which was the knife sheath, and found that it was a match for the biological father of Brian. Brian was then arrested at the residence in Pennsylvania. So that's kind of where it almost finishes up. Um, it's kind of their case wrapped up in 19 pages and how they essentially came to the conclusion that Brian was likely the suspect. And there was also, this wasn't in the affidavit, but I don't think we've talked about it in an episode yet, that he, on his way from um, Idaho to Pennsylvania, he was pulled over two separate times and the body cam footage was released from both of those incidents. And one of them, you only see him for a second because the body camera just, (laughs) he was out of shot. And then the first time he was pulled over, I think in Indiana. They're both in Indiana, I think. Because they were only a few minutes um, apart. So yeah, I'm yeah. fairly sure they were both in Indiana. Um, it was, it's like the weirdest thing. It's very hard to hear what they're talking about. But like the cop pulls them over. for. First of all, it came out also that 
like police were told basically to pull them over to try to get well wait just while you get into that there's actually been a statement by the fbi saying no they're they, like no no they're like no <laughs> so i would like, have just been like yeah <laughs> okay well there was at one point it was being said by the news that yeah the police were told to like pull over this car to like kind of like get a picture to like just check in basically see what was going on what they had to say now the fbi i guess is saying that's not true but anyway so the cop pulls them over for tailgating and they just start like chatting for no reason about like a hostage situation that's happened that morning at wsu because he's like oh where are you guys coming from and they said oh wsu like we're going to pennsylvania and they just start talking about like a mass shooting hostage situation it was very weird and very out of place i just can't Um, believe too that especially now because when they when the news articles said that the fbi had directed them to make these traffic stops and try and see you know if brian had any injuries or whatever I thought, oh, yeah, okay, maybe. But now that it's come out that they didn't and they didn't, like it's, their statement says, contrary to reports, the December 15 traffic stops conducted on the vehicle being driven by Brian were not requested or directed by the FBI. So essentially, randomly, he was stopped twice in the space of a few minutes for two by two different police officers. Like what are the odds? And he was pulled over <laughs> another time, mentioned in the affidavit <laughs> where he gave his phone number. That maybe they he was from. a really horrible driver. <laughs> Yeah, he had to make that three-point turn. <laughs> um, yeah, so anyway, kind of interesting. But, yeah, yeah, it's just crazy how it all ended up happening. Yeah, I think cases like this are so interesting, and that's why I'm always hesitant to comment on, like, the police have nothing, like, they're fucking stupid idiots because, like, there's so much going on behind the scenes, and it's, it's just so interesting to me how they track this stuff down and how they could – like use your phone like to ping you and figure out like all the places you've been your car and then they get like surveillance from all the areas and how they literally went and got his trash in pennsylvania like and even how they went back to that first august traffic stop and found the phone number and and pinged it like it's very clever really what they've done Mm -hmm. just one kind of addition that i wanted to make when we spoke about the dna from the affidavit it says at least 99.99998 of the male population would be expected to be excluded from the possibility of being brian's biological father so that dna on the knife seems pretty definitely to belong to brian um, mm-hmm. and that I think that was seems like it was the clincher in the case for making the arrest. Yeah, and they still haven't actually found the knife. No, no. As far as we know. Could that change maybe? I don't know. Yeah. Kelly, who's familiar with the area, she said there's a big area where he basically could have gotten rid of it and will probably never be found. Yep. Like I don't even – like maybe someday someone will come across it, but it doesn't seem like – um, like I, I don't even know if it's that necessary anymore. Well, now they know what kind of knife yeah. it was based on the sheath and all that type of stuff. But anyway, I'm sure it would be nice for them to have. Yeah, and it also came out today that it's just like a weird, stupid thing, but that his sister like had an acting credit in just like a stupid little school <laughs> type movie where a bunch of college students were murdered. So everyone was like losing their minds about that. Yeah, I had that in the notes. It was um. It's called Two Days. Two Days Back. Two Days Back. Yeah. And basically the premise of the movie is about these college kids, I believe, who were stabbed with knives. So. Yeah. So I don't know. I mean, I guess it's weird. Maybe he got the idea from it, but I don't know. I feel bad for his sister, so. Yeah. His sisters, I believe he has two sisters and his mum were at the court the other day when he appeared in court. I have to wonder if they will be again once now all these documents have come out. 
Yeah, I think that's it for like the info that's out. I guess if there anything else comes out, I'm gonna try to get this episode out sooner than it normally would come out. But if anything else interesting comes out, I could put in a clip here, or maybe we'll add in more. But that's all the facts, and now we'll get into like some of the chat, I guess. All right, so I just kind of noted down a few points and questions we asked on our Instagram if anyone had any questions they wanted us to try and address. Um, I think one of the main things is that we've learned that Dylan, the roommate, was actually sleeping on the second floor and not the first. The story that we were always given was that the roommates were on the first floor, which may have explained why they didn't hear anything and why they weren't targeted, but now we know that's not entirely true. Um, and that Bethany, it seems like, was on the first floor. Dylan wasn't, and Dylan actually did see who was likely to be Brian. Um, and that has kind of raised the question that we have had hundreds, if not thousands, of times today about why didn't she call the police? Um, basically, there was a rumor really early on in this case, and I'm talking days after it happened. I think there was a screenshot too where basically – it said that Dylan had seen someone and this guy was all dressed in black and was, but she thought she was dreaming. And so she shut the door and went back to sleep. And that kind of runs along with what we're hearing today as well. There are some rumors that there were maybe some drugs involved um, and that Dylan thought she was hallucinating. Um, I don't know if drugs were involved. I suspect there was at least alcohol involved. So maybe she thought she was crazy. Like, I don't know. There, there are a lot of reasons. When we've been discussing it today, some people said that basically in a house like this that was a party house, maybe she saw it and kind of quickly started doubting what she was seeing. Maybe she assumed that the guy was there for a hookup and she mm. kind of, you know, just pushed it out of her mind because of that. Someone sent us a message and said, from someone who lived with two female roommates who I wasn't very close with, they bought home guys from bars and Tinder constantly and never informed me. Anytime I saw a man in the house late at night, if I left my room to go to the bathroom, I just assumed they were with one of the girls and I locked my door behind me. If there was boys in and out of the house, which there may have been, we don't know, it might not have registered that something more sinister was happening. Um, and like we were talking about it earlier, just kind of amongst ourselves too, if I hear a noise in the night, I always try and ignore it. Like I'm like, no, no, mm -hmm. it's fine. It's not ever going to be anything. And 99% of the time for most people, it isn't anything. You'd never in a million years think that this quadruple murder is happening in the room next to you and above you. Yeah. I think we've said that in a lot of different episodes where people are like, how didn't they know? Or why didn't this person do this? Or this person should have done this. Like most people's first instinct isn't, oh my God, there's a murder happening. Like most people just are like, oh, that was weird. Or that was kind of whatever like and like you said that was a party house people seemed to kind of always be in and out like they just got a food delivery order it just seemed like a house where people were in and out of it a lot a lot of people live there and i just wanted to bring up also because some people are like well he was wearing a mask like isn't that weird but i'm pretty sure it was just a covid mask or something um, yeah similar because it just said it was covering his nose and his mouth and that she could see his eyes and his eyebrows you think if it was more something like a ski mask or a balaclava that probably would have been specified it just like it, i guess it could have been still but it doesn't sound like it was it sounds like it was probably just a face mask which he wore because that would be an explainable disguise if you're pulled over and you're wearing the mask like no one's gonna bat an eyelid but if you are wearing some other type of mask people might find that strange yeah I know it's easy to be like, oh, she should have called 911. Like, what the heck? And I just feel so bad for her. I'm sure she feels terrible, super guilty. 
and just also like the trauma of surviving. Yeah. So that's the other kind of main comment that we've had. Like, so there's two, there's basically two sides to the story. Most people are like, why the hell didn't she call 911? The other one is like, I can understand why. I'll just read out this message that we got from someone. I'll keep it anonymous, but it's interesting. They wrote, as someone with PTSD, I can completely understand why people don't understand why she didn't call 911. I just think people need to take a big step back. Yes, maybe she thought she was dreaming. Maybe she was in shock and maybe she was in shock for a while. I had someone jiggle my front door once in the middle of the night while I was home alone. I walked downstairs, watched it happen, and I froze. I was completely out of it in that instant. When I finally came out of the shock, the neighbor, the person had already moved on to a neighbor's house. I later found out he broke into these. But when I finally had some realization come back to me, I dialed 911. I couldn't speak. I physically couldn't speak. So it just goes on. Like it's kind of reiterating that you don't actually know how you'd react in that situation, especially if you were maybe drunk or high, you know, obviously, or speculation in terms of what kind of state she was in. But you just don't know how you would react. And maybe in her mind, she's like, no, no, it's fine. She didn't really hear anything further. It doesn't sound like there was screams. There maybe, she said, like the thump and, they thought she was she thought that Kaylee was playing with the dog. I'm sure mm-hmm. maybe if there had have been blood curdling screams, it might have been different. Um, but it's just one of those situations where you don't know how you will react, I guess, until you're in there. Yeah. I feel like with a lot of situations too, not only do people not automatically assume like, ah, there's like a crazy murder happening. Like most people try to like write off and explain away if something potentially scary is happening. Like if you hear a scary sound, you're like, oh, it's probably the wind. It was probably this. It was probably not a murderer. And especially the other thing that makes me think, because she said that she heard a male who we now probably assume was Brian saying, oh, it's okay. I'm going to help you. Maybe. It could have been Ethan. Yeah, I don't know. I, I like it could it could have been absolutely, but I feel like it was probably Brian trying to get her to calm down. Like it's okay, it's okay. Yeah. I'm gonna help you. I'm gonna help you. Um, I suspect Ethan probably was killed first. Maybe I don't know. Like this is just my my reading of the affidavit and taking from it. You know, basically what I think it's. A, I would more th- my first thought would be Brian, but then I was like, well, I guess it could have been Ethan. Like, what if he crossed paths with? um brian because they were awake and like heard something and then you know like they see clearly brian was probably bloody and has a knife maybe ethan could have been like oh i'll help you like i'll help you like you don't have to kill us like mm. yeah i'll yeah. help you get out of here type thing but i guess even like it whatever way it was they're not really well they're not threatening words like it's not like i'm gonna yeah. kill you i'm gonna do this like maybe she just thought something was going on and this guy was you know like it there's ways that she could have explained it kind of in her head that it wasn't a threatening situation even the crying you could a house of drunk girls i'm sure they're yeah. crying all the time <laughs> that was another message like I, i've lived in a house of drunk girls there's crying all the time like maybe she thought yeah. ethan and zana were having a fight and that was like mm-hmm. yeah it's like it is unbelievable that she managed to go back to sleep in some ways but i can also see that it could, could be explainable yeah, I feel bad for her and I feel bad that the whole internet is just like yeah. destroying her right now. But it also is a huge time gap between when this happened and when 911 was actually called. It's like they just I'm sure they slept late, like they were up very late, but it's like geez. Yeah, I still think we will get a lot more answers if they release the 911 call. I know there's been more speculation today that maybe Bethany was the one who called 911 because Dylan was unconscious and maybe Dylan was unconscious ever since she saw this guy. Do you know what I mean? Like maybe mm-hmm. that could still explain the unconscious call. I know that people have said that's just what 911 
dispatchers use as terminology when they haven't confirmed that someone has passed away. So it could still be related to the four murders we don't know. Um, we still don't know who called 911. That's been asked a few times. That still hasn't been released. It might be before the episode is aired. But And how we were assuming that they must have been like in their rooms or something, but now it seems like Xana and Ethan weren't locked in their rooms. So it's just no. interesting. Like who called 911 and said unconscious? Yes. And like, that's another question that we've had a lot. Why haven't they released the 911 call? Um, one theory that I've read today, which actually makes a bit of sense to me, is that they didn't release it because Dylan possibly spoke in the 911 call about seeing the guy the night before, and they didn't release it because they didn't want her to be targeted by him before he was arrested, which I mm. guess could be part of it. Um, I just, I don't know. I, don't, I really don't know. I. It wouldn't surprise me either way if there's a lot of information in the 911 call or no information. Yeah. Or I wonder if – no, because I said it came from one of the surviving roommates' phones because I was like, oh, maybe like one of the ex-boy – one of the boyfriends or whatever was trying to call Maddie or Kaylee and they just weren't getting an answer, so they called yeah. someone to check on them. But they did also say early on too or earlier that the roommates called other people to the house. So yeah. they – it's, they've always said the call came from the roommate's phone, but it hasn't said who made the call. It could have, maybe it could have been someone else. I don't know. There's, it's just all yeah, speculation. It's confusing. Stage. Yeah. The other thing too that a few people have mentioned today is that when Brian was arrested, he apparently did ask if anyone else had been arrested. So I wouldn't be surprised if that kind of leads to more speculation in terms of Dylan's involvement. I don't think she was involved in this. I feel like she was – it was just shitty timing in terms of her seeing him and good timing that she wasn't killed. But I feel like this – I wonder if he saw her or he just didn't even see her. Yeah. Yeah, true. I didn't even think about that. I just assumed because she saw him, he saw her, but maybe he didn't. I feel like he must not have seen her. Yeah. I don't know. So I wouldn't be surprised. Like you said, I'm sure she's been dragged by the internet um, now anyway, but it, it's already happening that I've seen. There's more speculation about that phrase that he asked police apparently. Um, so one other thing that kind of was confirmed as well, a lot of people always in the past were like, why didn't the dog bark? You know, we now know the dog did bark. The dog barked multiple times. Um, but I'm assuming the dog was crated, which I think we spoke about in a past episode too. Or he was just in Kaylee's room. Oh yeah. Cause they're in a separate Kaylee's room, room where they were empty. Yeah. 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 True. In actually. Room. Yeah. So the dog, <laughs> the other message we've had a lot of is, is the dog okay? The dog is fine. I don't believe the dog was injured at all. Um, no, he wasn't. They said that he wasn't like in the crime scene. No. So the dog was fine. The dog, I believe, is now living with Jack, who was Kaylee's ex on again, off again boyfriend. And that was his other owner. So the dog is fine. We did a poll the other day. This is before the affidavit did come out. And I asked if people thought Brian had acted alone or if other, if other, you know, it was either did he act alone or was there more to the story? 78% of people said they believed he acted alone. 22% said there was more to the story. I wonder, we might have to do another poll and see if that's changed now that the documents have been released. Um, I feel like it's pretty clear he conducted the murders by himself. I don't think there was anyone else. I I would wonder if his father knew he had done it. Uh, Maybe not at the time, but as time went on, I wonder if his dad knew. Yeah, I don't know, or if they were suspicious at all. Hmm. You think surely, uh, I don't know, like if the media alerts about the white Elantra driving across the state, like it's, yeah, interesting. Yeah. And I was just thinking how people are going to be like, oh, like, 
was Dylan like in on it with Brian from what I've read about Brian he didn't really like girls and didn't get along with girls so I feel like there's no way he would work with a girl um I read this post and I think it gives some good insight into what Brian was actually like from people who knew him I know tons of people come out of the woodwork but they've all said dumb things like yeah like he always had a coffee (laughs) and he and he was perpetually exhausted Yeah. So so it seems like a lot of people are talking that didn't really know him. But this post was from two people who actually knew him pretty well. So this Reddit post is from the person who interviewed them for an article. So I'll just read the post. Um, Said, I was on the call with two of Brian's friends for this article. And this is my takeaway from what was printed and not said he was only bullied by females, so it would naturally seem to possibly have created a disconnect between Brian and women. His friend for two years gave a perspective about his offensive comments and awkward slash offensive behavior that I think is more accurate than what has been printed by people who barely knew him. She said that she didn't think he ever meant things the way they came out and that he spoke in the textbook intellectual way to even close friends and family. She said, being older, she understood when he spoke that way, but in a group or class setting, she had to sometimes remind him to tone it down, meaning to speak in simpler terms because not everyone understands what you're saying when you basically sound like you're reading from a scientific paper as you explain something. It doesn't mean as if he did it for the purpose of showing off as much as it seems as if his mind kind of worked in a textbook way. And that was something that alienated him from his peers, but he didn't seem to be naturally inclined to express himself or hold conversations in a conversational way. She said she's always wondered if he was on the spectrum and almost just assumed that he was. So did the other friend. They couldn't elaborate on it any more than just say that he was socially awkward. With the closer friend stating that he didn't have friends, but not because he was closed off or didn't want to, but that the way he communicated and interacted with people made him alienate himself. She said he spoke about being bullied in high school and was a recovering heroin addict with a lot of sobriety by that time. I very much believe her account of him not meaning to be offensive when he was. The girl from high school tried to befriend him after he acted in a way she felt was inappropriate, asking her if she wanted to, quote, hang out. But they were strangers and she thought he knew that she had a boyfriend. Again, like his closer friend, she did so because she didn't feel as if he had intentionally been trying to be creepy. However, she said she was never successful in becoming close friends with him because she felt as though he only really connected on a friendship level with males and didn't have many female friends. Even his friend at whatever JC is was much older than him having a child his age. I'm only speculating on this part, but it seems as if he thought women thought of women only in terms of being romantically involved and not as potential friends. The other thing that stood out to me is that he chose a very specific field of study, trying to choose between criminology and forensics, but never once stated what he wanted to do with his degree. Even when they kept in touch after junior college, he never said that his what his intent was as far as career. I think JC says, sounds like it was junior college then. Oh, uh, maybe. Mm. Says last, I found another friend who was close to him growing up and has tons of insight because he spent the night at his house when they were kids saying he said that Brian's dad made him this way, saying it's a sad story and implied abuse. He said, quote, he's just like him, implying that either he's like his dad or his dad is like him. But he said he's not surprised that he killed people. He backed out of the interview and seems to be very much upset by everything said. And he wants to see if Brian's convicted before coming forward. Make me wonder if he's afraid of retaliation by Brian or anyone else. That's all the info I can give about this, but can send proof to the mods if necessary. 
Um, and then I also like secondhand know someone who knows the family and they said the same thing about him being very socially awkward. They said they always thought the family was very nice, but they did also say that Brian only liked to go out on runs or like two or three in the morning because he didn't want to be seen working out by anyone. So I thought that was interesting because some of the times that he was around the Moscow house, like when he was staking it out, those 12 times were in like the odd hours of the morning or like very, very late at night. And that's kind of verified too. There was a run keeper app that I've seen at least one run, which is I think 1am or something like that. So yeah, he's definitely out there running around at night Some for some reason. Yeah. It's interesting too that there hasn't been anyone come out yet who have said they were ever in a relationship with Brian or like, you know, usually they're like, oh, you know, I dated him once and things like that. Mm -hmm. But there's been nothing like that in terms of, which I don't blame them because I wouldn't want to be associated either at this point. But, you know, interesting that there hasn't been anything like that. Yeah, it seems like there's not a lot of people even coming out that really knew him that well. Yeah. I want, like I, I hope we find out more. I'm sure we will about kind of did he live with anyone? Did he have a roommate? Did he maybe he lived alone? It just seems like apart from his university staff, there wasn't anyone who really interacted with him too much. Yeah. And I still – we don't know why he picked them, if there was any connection, if he just knew he wanted to kill someone and just picked them based off of like just seeing them in passing or if he knew one of the girls somehow or – yeah, I feel like that will likely come out if it goes to trial, um, which it seems like it probably will based on him being excited to be exonerated. So I suspect, like we had one of the questions that was asked was what are the next steps in this case? So Brian's attorney did ask for bail and that was denied and there will be a hearing next week. Um and that basically, based on him saying that he thinks he's going to be exonerated, that will probably be a not guilty plea, which means it will go to trial um, unless mm-hmm. something changes now that the documents have come out. That is kind of the expected way forward, I would believe. One of the Instagram questions that we got was, why didn't they question Brian previously with all the evidence? And I feel like they were trying not to like- Spook him. Like, yeah, like let him know if they were onto him because I think- think they probably needed to get that dna that they got from the trash in pennsylvania yeah um because i don't think i'm not really sure but someone had said this to me in a message that how they did the genealogy dna to kind of track him down i don't think that would like stand in court really yeah and so i, I also, like they probably need more concrete <laughs> dna connection especially because they didn't have the murder weapon like they had this mm-hmm. tiny bit of dna from the button on the knife sheath so yeah I I also and I also feel like that's why they kind of played dumb and they acted like they didn't have any information when essentially they had this all from very early on. They must have felt so smug when they released this affidavit. <laughs> like, yeah, you all thought we were fucking stupid. I wonder why they released the information about the white Elantra when they did. Like they pretty clearly seemed to know it was Brian's car. I wonder why I think they released it around uh, if December 7 or December 12 off the top of my head. So I wonder why they did it then instead of – or I wonder why they did it then, basically. I'd like to know that kind of reasoning. Maybe they had an inkling he was going to take off, maybe. Yeah, maybe they were – if they had already had an idea it was him, I'm not sure if they did or didn't. I don't remember, like, the dates off the top of my head. Maybe they wanted to see if he would, like, do anything, like, paint his car. Well, I think they said November 29 was the first time they identified the car as likely belonging yeah. to Brian. So I feel like by the time they released the information and asked people for information on the car, they 
knew generally who it was. So I'm interested to know the reasoning behind that. Maybe they wanted to get him to like come forward on his own because they were like, we feel like this person has information. They didn't ever say like this person is probably the the killer. They're like, we believe this person has information about the crime. So maybe he would like come forward and try to insert himself. I was driving past doing this at this time of night or whatever. Yeah, I did a three-point turn right in front of their house. (laughs) Um, The other question that we've been asked a lot and we really have no idea is why didn't he kill Dylan? Maybe he didn't see her. Like you said, maybe that could explain why. Um, Yeah, or maybe he just knew that he had to get out of there. Like I I feel like what's – and I think we said this before too. What likely happened was he went into the house. I think he went straight up the stairs and killed Kaylee and Maddie. And then I think Ethan and Zana came out. Um, Maybe they heard Mm -hmm. the sound, the thump, whatever. And that's when he said, hey, I'm trying to help you. I'm trying to help you. Um, And then he killed them. So may I I would like to know at what point – Dylan saw him like like I don't know if we'll ever find out but I would think that maybe either he didn't see her or he just needed to get out of there yeah he I I, I, I still I still feel like likely Kaylee possibly Maddie were the main targets and that by that stage he was just like no I've had enough I don't I don't need to kill her too yeah I feel like he Maybe didn't see her. I don't know. Like, was she just peeking out of her door? Was it open all the way? I don't know. I wonder too if anything will come of the reports that the house front door was open at 8 or 8.30 in the morning. I wonder if anything will come from that or if that will end up not being true. I don't know. It'll be interesting to see. Yeah, I really want to know about the whole morning after because it just seemed like the 911 call and the lead up to the 911 call, especially if Xana and Ethan were not locked in a room like no one went in the house I, I yeah know. well it said they were on the floor I don't know if it specifies the floor what in the bedroom. floor like if it was the bedroom floor or if it was I'm assuming it probably was the bedroom floor um obviously we don't yeah. know but I would assume I, know, I, I guess I feel like I heard a news person say that Xana was like Xana or Ethan was in the doorway so I guess that might not be true and that's kind of what I was going off of um, so some of the other questions, which I think we've already addressed, we don't know who called 911 um, and that we, there, you know, people are like, well, I thought the roommate was on the first floor. We now know that she was on the second floor. Bethany was on the only one asleep on the first floor and Brian hasn't said anything and made a statement. I believe his family made a statement, which we've put on our highlights and it was just giving, you know, thoughts and prayers to the we've victims. We've read it, I think, on yeah. the last one. So other than that, they haven't said anything either. Some comments which I found kind of interesting is that apparently Brian is a pretty staunch vegan. The jail have had to try to cater to his vegan diet. They made a funny statement. They're like, we will try, but we're not buying any new pots and pans or anything like that. But the comments today were like, wow, he used a leather sheathed knife and he's a vegan. I don't know. disc. (laughs) Yeah, and he also murdered people. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So I just wanted to, because that's been said quite a few times. I feel like the vegan thing is probably just a dietary thing for him. It's, uh, it's not a not a saving animals. Yeah, not a morally ethic thing for him. Ethical thing. Um. So yeah, the other thing that we've touched on is basically that for a criminology student, he doesn't seem to have been very clever or used his apparent knowledge. He was very messy. Don't know why. I feel like though it's like you can read so much about like scuba diving per se but just because you read a bunch of books on scuba diving doesn't mean you could just like hop right in and go scuba diving yeah true like it's it's hot and 
I know people have also questioned if this could have been part of his research, like when we spoke about his survey in the last episode and the questions he had, maybe this was his ultimate experiment. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know why scuba diving was what came to my mind, but... (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, I feel that's kind of it up to date with the affidavit. The main thing I could see possibly happening next week or in the next few days is maybe the 911 call will get released, but I also could see that being held back until the trial for whatever reason, depending mm. on what is kind of contained in it. Yeah. Um, the, uh, Brian, in terms of Brian's legal process too, he has been, um, I don't know what the word is, he has been, his case has been picked up by Ann Taylor, who's a public defender. His parents, I believe, have said they don't have the money to fund his legal process. So at the moment mm-hmm. he's got Ann Taylor, who's a public defender. I wonder if that will change if someone kind of high profile will want to take it on pro bono, we don't know. But at that, at this point, it's Ann Taylor, who is a local public defender. With all this evidence against him, like his car being there, the phone being there, like pretty much stalking them, it seemed like. DNA. Them seeing him. DNA. I love how still it was like the last lawyer said that Brian was <laughs> shocked a little bit. <laughs> I have to wonder if now that they know that police seem to have all this like there is a lot I feel like this is seems way more airtight than the Delphi case for example (laughs) but um I wonder if his cockiness and his eagerness to be exonerated will change maybe a bit a little less eager (laughs) a little less excited (laughs) yeah Uh, all right i think that's everything um if anything else big happens we'll either try to put in some clips if it's like super big and crazy we'll try to record again but i'm gonna try to get this episode out quick so we have um some blog posts on this on our blog at truecrimesocietyblog.com if you want to jump in and read in from the start if you follow us on instagram we're always posting about this case pretty much especially lately there's just so much about it we are True Crime Society on Instagram. And if you want to go back to the start, we have highlights on the Moscow case. There's multiple of them. So if you start at the first one, go through it, you could see literally everything we've posted up until current day. We might have to go back and add some of the stuff. You're better at doing it than me, but <laughs> I'll try to be better mm-hmm. at it. Um, but yeah, if you want to go back and just like see everything, yeah, we're up to it's the a good fifth, place to do it. I started the fifth highlight today. <laughs> Oh, my God. Um, I feel bad. I always forget to do it. Follow our personal accounts. Mine is DefSum underscore Olivia's TCS Olivia. We post some, like, behind-the-scenes stuff, me editing in my car, Olivia having some cute drinks and snacks, <laughs> our cute pets, if you want to see any of that. Um, check us out there. Leave us a review. Share the podcast with your friends, all the usual stuff. Um, but that's it. Anything else? Nope, that's it, I think, for now. All right, thanks for listening, guys. Stay safe out there. Peace out. See ya.